Welcome to Genetically Speaking, ASHD's new podcast. This episode is part of a series focused on career insights from your fellow members. We hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Chris Gunter, and I'm here with another ASHD interview with Dr. Clement Chow. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little about uh, where you work and what you do? Hi, thanks, Chris. Um, my name is Clement. Um, I'm a assistant professor in the Department of Human Genetics at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Tell us a little about what your lab works on. My lab works on um, building models of rare disease in Drosophila and trying to find um, targetable genes for therapy and also small molecules that could be used for therapy. That sounds pretty cool. So how did you get into science? What led you to think about science in the first place? Uh, as a kid, I was just really interested in in, um, in animals outside and just kind of trying to find the different animals that are in your yard and the bugs and all that and spent a lot of time doing that. And Any that, good ones? Any good bugs? A lot of frogs. Excellent. <laughs> a lot of frogs with my, with my, with my brother. Um, and that just naturally kind of transitioned into, into studying biology and, and genetics. Great. And so you did that for undergrad and then went to grad school in yeah. genetics? or Yeah. So yeah. so in undergrad, I was a neurobiology and behavior um, kind of concentration biology major. Um, I thought I was really interested in animal behavior, but a couple different experiences as an undergrad really got me thinking about human genetics and um, and and kind of wanting to explore what goes wrong mm-hmm. with disease. Mm-hmm. And um, I probably want to know which what what experience. Yeah. So so it, yeah. I spent a summer at um in a in a perinatology clinic oh, working wow. with genetic counselors and um perinatologists, and that that was actually a really really interesting experience. I really got to see kind of firsthand what happens when genetics um, mm-hmm. doesn't quite work the way we want it to. And um, I got to see firsthand birth defects and a lot of syndromes, kind of classic ones you learn about in class. And that's what really got me interested in, in human genetics. I also had a really cool class in undergrad at Cornell, which just, I think it was titled Mother Basis of Human Genetics. And that was the first time I learned about, you know, autosomal recessive dominant explaining mutations that lead to kind of real human diseases. I think those two experiences were, were quite transforming. Yeah, that's cool. And a theme that has come up on a number of our interviews here has been mentoring as well. So did you have mentors who were really important in that decision? Yeah, I had um, a couple mentors in, in undergrad that kind of really helped me get to the grad school process, get me through applying to grad school, but also started helped me thinking about um, what are the, what are the, how, how do I approach what I'm interested in kind of in a practical research, research way? And I think all those people were incredibly helpful and kind of shaping what I'm doing today. Yeah. So important. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah absolutely. And so one of the ways that we got to know each other is through Twitter. And what mm-hmm. I admire about you with your use of Twitter is that you are able to show that scientists have personalities and they're humans mm-hmm. as well. <laughs> Talk to me about a little about your philosophy for using social media. I, I think that um, everyone knows your science and everyone can look up your science just fine. Um, I, I actually feel like, you know, social media and Twitter in particular is really for um, humanizing the scientists. And um, I think the most interesting Twitter account are the people who let their personality shine through. Some of it is science, some of it isn't. Some of it is silly, some of it is serious. But um, I think that I think if you if you look across science Twitter, that's what it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That um, that I think the the most interesting people are the ones that let their personality shine through, and that's really kind of what you know the count. 
we account for, not really the signs. Right, you remember them putting up pictures of snowshoeing, for example, right? Which I already asked you about, uh, which looks so totally fun and I want to go, but that's a separate interview that we'll have. So um, do you ever, um, what is what are the reactions from your peers or other people who are not on social media? Do you ever get any kind of blowback or why are you wasting your time on that or anything like that? A little bit. I get a little bit of blowback, but I think that um, for the most part, I, I think people get it now. It's, it's a little bit yeah. more ubiquitous now than it was five years ago, for example. Um, but, you know, people should just use it however they feel it's useful. So that means they don't find it useful at all. Don't right. be on it. But. Yeah. And so what are the, what's the value to you then in terms of your science? For In terms of my science, I think the value is just getting the, the names of the people who do the work in my lab out kind of to to um to the science world and just highlighting you know their their contributions to this, to the study you know, rather than you know i think what a lot of people do now is um do twitter summaries of their papers and i think that that's a really good way of highlighting who contributed to what in the paper the tweetorials yeah right? tweetorials yeah. yeah, that's yeah i know that's really important and i am seeing that more too now that's really nice to be able mm-hmm. to see that so I, I think that's an excellent point, talking about people in your lab, which gets back to now your philosophy of mentoring. Now that you're on the other side, what is really important to you and what do you try to stress with your trainees? Uh, my, I see my job as a mentor to really get them to where they want to be. So whether it's, um, w- whether it's in the short term or career long term, I think, you know, I have um, ongoing discussions with the people in my lab about, you know, what are your goals? You know, what are your career goals? What do you need? What do you need from me to get there? And I, and I try really hard to kind of fill that, fill that need for them, find them the resources or find them the people they need to talk to. That, that, I think that that's really, um, one of my more important jobs as a, as a mentor is really, you know, they're only spending four or five, six years with me. And so they have a lifetime after me. So I really want to kind of get them on their way to, to there. Yeah, that's that's great. Oh, it may feel like a really long four or five years <laughs> when we're doing our yes. PhDs, right? But in a long scheme of things, so like, all right. So, and then do you have any specific tips that you give trainees, either how to or how not to, things to do, things to avoid? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess kind of generally, I just I just really suggest that they constantly think about um what they what they want, whether it's experimentally what they're trying to get at or or what they want career-wise. Constantly think about, um, think about, you know, what what are the goals and what what are the next steps that I need to get there. And I think if you're constantly having that conversation with yourself, I think the next steps are a little easier. Whether it's an experiment or or um or a career. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and don't be afraid to to try things and absolutely and and fail, quote unquote. I'm making quotation marks because you don't know, right? That that can be useful later. Mm-hmm. So did you take any avenues that you are not pursuing? Did you have any quote unquote failures as you were moving along that you learned from or uh, in terms of your career? Or, mm, it's okay to say no. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I've, I failed quite a bit. <laughs> I really do that. They, they, wa- they watch over you. I mean, you know, one of the things I did was I failed my prelim the first time. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 And um, that's. All of us, yeah. Right. Think about that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I failed my prelim the first time, and it was a little bit of overconfidence, probably, and and ill preparedness. But um, but having gone through that, you know, you know that you can get through it the other side, and and then Absolutely. a lot of things in grad school felt a lot less 
Right. Less difficult after <laughs> Absolutely, that. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So much better prepared. Yeah. But of yeah. course, the 2020 high vision is that, is that that's not hard compared to what a lot of things you have to do in this career afterwards. So. But everyone, I think, hits a wall at some yeah, point, absolutely. right? And has to decide if they're going to go over or yeah, not. Or, yeah. 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 And that's cool. And obviously, you're doing well now. So, obviously, the lesson is that things can happen and that you can move to become a faculty position. So I know that, how long have you been at Utah? Four and a half years. Four and a half years. So, so fairly recent in terms of faculty mm-hmm. job search. How did that go? And do you have any tips for people who are going to be in the same boat looking for faculty jobs? I mean, so my, my job search was a little rough. <laughs> I was on, I was on the market for two years. But that's not uncommon. That's not uncommon. Yeah. Correct. It's not, it's not uncommon. Um, and there's a lot of rejection along the way. Yep. Um, Try to keep it in perspective. <laughs> it's very difficult to do, but but it's really not. I mean, having been on the other side now and having kind of again twenty twenty hindsight, is that it's really not personal, and a lot of it is just about fit. Yep, and, and so many variables that you can't control and don't know about when absolutely. you're just applying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so it was it was rough, but it it worked out in the end, and and I think that you, when you find the right fit, I think it's it's clear to both sides. And I think you have a feeling when you leave the job interview that it was a good thing. Even the first one? Yeah. yeah. Even the first one. Yeah. And did you do anything the second time around differently that you that you wish you'd done the first time maybe? or? I think it was just experience, really. I mean, I think that it's really hard to practice, you know, interviewing without doing it. You know, it's really hard to um, practice a chalk talk without doing it. Mm-hmm. You can't really practice it even with your colleagues because it's just not the same and um, so, so I think it it was just really experience. And are chalk talks different different places? Like, how much did you ask f- in advance before your interview for them to tell you about what was going to happen? Probably should have asked more. <laughs> <laughs> I always wonder about that, right? How much can you really yeah. ask? Because I think people don't want to. I'm not using my experience as an editor too. People don't ask us for a lot of information that they really yeah. could and should ask us for, right? So. Um, I should probably should have asked for more um information, but the chalk talk is really kind of the the big black box I think of the of the interview, and, and I think crazy questions can come out of left field that you have to learn to answer or at least address with grace. Yeah, which is exactly. <laughs> and, and um and so yeah. you know whether it's learning to dodge a question or learning to redirect the question, I think that. It's those are skills that I think only can be learned on, on on the job, so to speak. And um, yeah, I, I think that that's just they're 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 difficult because they're they're confusing and you don't know what to expect. Right, and that's so difficult. Yeah. My first talk I ever gave at ASHG a few years ago, just a few. Um, I got a question from one of the moderators that completely stumped me, and I had to, I couldn't hear them either because it was the slide the stage was so big and I had to ask him to repeat it three separate times before I was totally in tears afterwards. So that's one of my failures. (laughs) But yeah, you're right. I mean, you just have to, you just have to keep going, right? And then go through them. And it's okay to ask for more information, right? Yeah, absolutely. um, Any other tips that you could give people who are thinking about um, going into faculty positions? I also want to say that you have worked with Matt Mike, right? In some industry collaborations as well. How did you, how did those come about? Those just came about through um, reaching out to other people and kind of be willing to explore, you know, new avenues of, of research and, you know, being willing to form kind of non-traditional collaborations. You know, I work with rare disease and trying to find, you know, therapeutics or 
or potential therapies for these diseases really necessitates working across with patients, with clinicians, and even industry. And so kind of being flexible, actually, it's really the, I think the real, the real, you know, the real, um, real way to success in academics is being able to just kind of grab a collaboration when it, when it shows itself, whether it's kind of the perfect thing that's, or whether it fits perfectly with your research program. Now it might be, it might fit well in five years and you just will kick yourself for not having started it five years ago. So that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. And so you get to work with patients now. We do do some work with patients. Yes. Yeah. That must be really, it sounds like that would be rewarding. It's, it's, it's good. I think it, it helps, um, the people in the lab remember why, why we're doing what we're doing mm-hmm. and kind of see the face of, of the diseases we're studying, not just models or pathways. Right. Particularly, as you said, you work with Drosophila quite a bit. So it does seem like that would be really yeah. a good reminder. Yeah. Of what you're doing, so. yeah. The patients also have incredible insight into the disease that never come out in the papers. And of course. So yeah. we've, we've been able to test things that we've heard about from patients in our models. And I think those, those kinds of, those kinds of conversations are incredibly valuable. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's really cool. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Clement Chow. Thanks for talking to us today. And this has been the ASHG podcast. Thank you. This has been Genetically Speaking. Join us next time for new conversations and check out our online library for more valuable content.